Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 181. We are back after a little bit of a podcast hiatus while we're trying to regroup and, and gather some content here right as professional baseball season gets underway. Um, this is actually a really timely episode because John O'Neill, who is director of performance and a co-owner at our Massachusetts facility, and I are going to be talking about college pitcher development. And more specifically, we're going to talk about some of the key competencies that we think are really important um, for our summer program participants. We have them both at our Massachusetts and our Florida facility. It's the eighth iteration of our one at our Massachusetts facility. This 10-week program runs from June 3rd, 2024, all the way through August 9th of 2024. And we also have our CSP Florida Summer Pro Experience, um, which is a new program we rolled out last year that really kind of uh, rolls out the red carpet in a similar way to what we deliver for our pro athletes during the off-season so they get a full experience on Everything from live ABs to crazy tech assessments, nutritional interventions, and lots and lots of bells and whistles that, that, that all fall in different categories underneath the health and human performance spectrum for baseball players. So we're really excited about these. If you're interested in the pro experience at our Florida facility, you can email cspflorida at gmail.com for more information. And if you're interested in the summer program at our Massachusetts facility, that can be cspmass at gmail.com. Again, these programs run from 6-3-24 through 8-9-24. Standard velocity increases for these programs has been four miles per hour on average over the last several years, very consistently. Um, it's a great fit um, for a number of different populations, as John and I will talk about in this podcast today, um, along with some, some other important tidbits of information that will benefit folks that don't participate in our programs as well. So hopefully you enjoy it, and thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by AG1, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it can be difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can often wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where AG1 can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. That's why I use it daily, as do several of my family members, and we recommend it to a lot of our top athletes. One scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet to support energy, focus, digestion, and recovery. And this can all happen for less than $3 per day and without taking multiple products. While most nutritional supplements come to market and stay stagnant, AG1 continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing over 50 improvements in the last decade alone. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best-tasting nutrition habit on the planet. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it'll work for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar per serving. They put 75 ingredients through the rigorous NSF certification test to come up with a safe formula that's trusted by some of the world's top athletes, including many of our own at Cressy Sports Performance. Right now, AG1 is giving our listeners a special offer of 10 free travel packets with their first purchase. Just head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim this special offer. 
These travel packets are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health while you're traveling for games, training, or simply on the go. They can be great counterbalance to the less than ideal on the road food options that are out there for a lot of our traveling baseball players. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance of getting nutrient diversity, head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy to get 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. You won't regret it. Welcome back to the podcast. We are rocking episode 181 with a um, second time guest, but you've also been a a host or a co-host several times. So John, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me. And I'm excited to talk about what we're going to get into in terms of the summer program. I know it's something we take pride in. um, And I know you guys have started one in in Florida as well, but we are entering year eight of our summer program. And I am fortunate enough to have seen all of them. I started uh, the job here during the first one. So I've, I've seen seven of them all the way through. And the first one I came in halfway through. Yeah, I think it's it's been cool to see the evolution of not just like what the offerings are, but also just what the typical player that comes in is like. The the industry has changed a lot over over that time period. So I think this will be a, a really cool podcast. We'll get two different perspectives too, right? You're in you're in cold Massachusetts. I'm in sunny Florida. Hence the hoodie versus the t-shirt. But I, I'm sure there are way more things that we'll agree on this than 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 the just the the weather changes. So um, I want to start out talking, and we're, we're going to speak more to like. I think big picture college development. I think that's the way to attack this um, because we want to make sure there, there's there's value for people near and far, you know, position players and pitchers, catchers, all that stuff. So I, I think what I always come back to is like, regardless of the population you deal with, needs assessment is where it's at, right? And and that's why a program you give to a 14 year old might not be appropriate for a 24 year old and vice versa. So when I, I talk about college athletes in particular, the needs assessment is is really really hard. And and I think what we should do is we should you know, kind of circle on the the important considerations before you go through a needs assessment. So I'll, I'll start with one and then I'll punt to you and we'll go back and forth until we run out of ideas. But I, I think the, the chronological age is actually a really, really key consideration is we realize there, there are kids that get to college at age 17, right? And, and some of them may be finishing puberty. They may still go through you know, massive growth spurts in their first year or two of college. We've certainly seen guys in the big leagues who grew six inches as a college freshman. Um, and then at the same time, like, especially with COVID and, uh, you know, some of the transfer portal stuff like that, people having crazy eligibility, we're seeing these, you know, 24 year old seniors that are still playing at times. So uh, to me, ages 17 to 23, 24, there's just such a massive range of possibilities for what you could literally encounter an athlete. Um, and I'm always blown away at how often in a college weight room, we see everybody doing the same thing. And, and I think it's been, you know, I understand, don't get me wrong, that, you know, college strength coaches have a really tough job when it's one on 30 or, or even more than that, particularly in the fall with, with larger rosters. But, um, you know, we see someone who might have, you know, five, six years of high level training experience doing the same thing as the the new freshman. It makes you realize that, you know, even independent of training age, just the sheer maturity that goes with being 22 versus 17, I think is a, is an absolute difference maker. So I, you know, at the end of the day, like one program on a dry erase board just doesn't work. And I think that's something that's, that's served us well as having a lot of individualization, in our programs and really meeting guys where they're at just from a, an overall chronological maturity standpoint. Um, what, what would you say is like a tag along to that? Yeah. So just to piggyback that one, um, actual training age, and this one can be a little tricky to figure out. So some people will tell you they've been to, you know, I trained here in high school. I trained here yeah. you know, this summer. I trained here this summer. 
Um, and sometimes those are the people who never saw any of them through, right? They they showed up for a month, twice a week, then they bounced to the next place and kept repeating. Um, and so they never really got the best version of the product, uh, but really kind of trying to be particular with questions that you ask. And, you know, can you give me a period where, you know, you trained four days a week for at least three straight months? Um, and, and you know, what, what worked, what didn't? Um, and really deciphering that. And um, usually this crowd tends to oversell their training experience uh, because they want to seem qualified for the program. Uh, I think kids are, are somewhat programmed to talk to coaches as if we're going to dictate playing time or it's going to dictate what they, you know, what version of the product they get from us. Um, when in reality, like the, the more accurate the information is, the better, right? So, um, you know, is this somebody who's never really done a consistent summer or winter in the gym? Um, were they playing multiple sports in high school? So they never had a chance to maybe they're college freshmen and their only experience in a, in a weight room consistently is in a college setting with, which, like you said, it might be one on 30, same program, um, not a ton of individual coaching group warm up, Um, and so just really trying to dive deep on that one. Um, we do a actually 20 question questionnaire that we send out ahead of time. And so that gives us at least a leg up when we do get into the conversations, but a lot of times the conversations are just clarifying what they wrote in their question because, or in the, in the questionnaire, because the questionnaire, like I said, they're going to try to oversell, you know, what they've done in the past. So they seem like they have a leg up on people when they get there. Um, you know, we've had people that look like they have six years of training experience and it's actually sub one good training age. We have people who, um, you know, just forgot to write down that they trained consistently for four years in high school and they didn't think it was relevant. Um, and all of a sudden they come in, and you think they're maybe not very strong on paper and you see them and it's like, all right, this guy has a real training age. Maybe his training needs to look a little different. So um, you mentioned it with chronological age in terms of 17 year olds, 24 year olds. Um, that one is it sometimes lines up with the training age, uh, but it doesn't always. I mean, we have 17 year olds in the gym up here that have been training with us consistently since they were 13. And their training age is a lot higher than some of our professional athletes who are 22. And yeah. so it's really just uh, trying to figure out what has happened in the past for them. Training age is a tricky one too, because, and maybe the best way to tell us, like you lift big boy weights, you're competing in powerlifting. I've done it in the past. Like you have athletes that are like, oh, you know, what do I have to do to be as strong as you? It's, hey, show up consistently for, for the next 20 years, just do it. And, but what it speaks to is baseball players, like they go and they play baseball, you know, it's six, seven months out of the year at the very least for most of them, you know, even probably more so in the younger ages, there's, there's never really like a true off season. You look at the college calendar. If somebody plays summer ball, you know, they might be in the middle of nowhere for a summer ball team. Maybe they get in a good month at August, they get back to campus, they're in fall ball for, for six weeks. So maybe they get like a, a really good two month go of it before winter break rolls around. And they're just kind of in season, that whole competitive, um, or that whole academic year. So, you know, they might be at a college for a year, but only get maybe three, four months of actual training in because the baseball demands are so high. So, you know, they might, they might've gone to college for four years, but actually gotten, you know, 16 months or so of, of true strength and conditioning training. And that's why I think you see a lot of players when they get to pro ball, take a big step forward because there is like a true off season, like, you know, Hey, minor league season ended on, you know, September 20th, whatever it is, October 1st, I got after it, October, November, December, January, and half of February, like that's four and a half, five months to really get some high quality work in and, and start packing away, you know, reps towards a training age. So I think training age is really uh, hard to interpret in a, in a baseball context. Obviously we're referring a lot to lifting and things like that. And they're developing other qualities by being out there, rotating, running fast, jumping high, throwing baseballs, you know, all that stuff is 
is vitally important towards the long-term development of an athlete. But if you have a guy that walks in and he, you know, he can't front squat 185 and he's telling you his training age is three years, then, you know, I, I'm sure we're both inherently suspicious of some of that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, like you said, it is very misleading. And, you know, the other thing with colleges and, and I think, you know, most kids will, or a lot of kids will say stuff to me like, Oh, my college strength coach isn't very good, or he doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, well, I might do the exact same thing as what he's doing. If I had 80 athletes over yeah. three teams and I'd never had the time to actually go through individually. Um, but it's a lot of, uh, like training for the test, um, in the college setting. It's in terms of what people are telling, you know, we're, we've got a max week, the week before finals week, we've got another testing week when we get back to school. And it's a lot of just like very by the book, like let's, let's consistently test strength, which you mentioned the powerlifting thing. Like if you test strength all the time, you probably aren't actually uh, develop having a chance to train strength and train to get, to get bigger, stronger. Um, and then the, the, the com other component with that is a big advantage in our setting. And I consider like our college program to be like the premium version of our product. Um, a lot of our high school kids essentially get that through the winter, um, in terms of the, you're throwing on this, the set schedule, you're training on a set schedule, the things line up. Um, but the actual communication between the, the pitching coaches and the, the S and C side, um, so a lot of times kids, you know, maybe have done a lot of lifting, but they've never been in a setting lifting wise where the people coaching them on the lifting were also talking to the people coaching them on the yeah. side, um, which, is, which is a huge deal. Like, Hey, is, is this working? Yes or no? Yeah. Uh, because we can, you know, say things like, you know, if you get your deadlift up to this, you're going to throw harder, but it's not really reality. You have to see it play through. Um, it's not a one-to-one, -one. it's not a causation. It's more of a loose correlation. So um, we need to actually make sure that the what we're thinking is happening in the weight room it, uh, is is actually happening on the mountain. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, to to be less granular and take a step back, the, the college experience is not homogenous, right? We we talk to kids about this all the time as they go through the recruiting process, where it's like, hey, every school has a really nice baseball field. That that doesn't mean the experience is going to be really good. You know, it's not just green grass and pretty girls. You've got to figure out, you know, is it a good athletic trainer? What do they have available in terms of amenities? You know. I, I look at what we experience. Like we have, we have professional players and you know, in organizations with multi-billion-dollar valuations who have never seen their pitch mix on an Edgertronic camera, which is astounding to me. You know, you know, eight nine years after it really entered baseball on a, on a higher level. So, um, you know, certainly, you know, what they might experience at a big time ACC or SEC school in terms of just tech access might be radically different than what they see at a, at a division three program or junior college or something like that. So, you know, I, I see a lot of times we, have, you know, we have all these amenities, like, you know, we've got a Proteus, we've got Trackman, we've got Edgertronic, we've got forest plates, we've got all these different things that we can use to help optimize, you know, who they are and what they do. Some guys come in just like craving some kind of mentorship in that regard, because they see all the tech available with, you know, just what's on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, but they've never really had access to it. So you can kind of be like a, a kid in a candy store the first time you get access to it. And, and we both know that can be massively impactful where, you, you know, you, you change a grip or you just, you know, understand what you're doing to impart force to a baseball all of a sudden that you know, that, that 88 becomes 93 simply because all the athleticism you have is being, you know, the force is being imparted to a baseball correctly to, to put you in a, in a good position. Sure. Yeah. That makes total sense. And uh, this is, I know we originally talked about like, Oh, we're going to go back and forth with the, uh, you know, looking at a needs analysis, yeah. but um, this is very much like, you know, trying to figure out you know, what is the, the needs analysis as a, as a definition is trying to figure out what, what would actually help the person the most. Yeah. And you mentioned guys, you know, who maybe throw hard, who, you know, it's just a matter of like getting a little more efficient to put force behind the baseball. And it's, it's the jump from 88 to 93. 
um, you know, we, you know, we are a lifting centric place. It was a gym first, then added, added baseball as it went. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of like 80 to 88 might be as simple as just get stronger. Right. Yes. And people, uh, tend to tend to overlook that or overthink that. Um, you mentioned one of the biggest changes in the program, just being the type of kid we get, yes. um, I would say 2017, 18 into 19, there wasn't a ton of like baseball, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok that kids were looking at and trying to find the perfect, like basically the magic pill version. Um, and uh, the needs analysis, which is essentially our evaluation process, um, helps kids figure out like, all right, instead of chasing everything you see on TikTok or everything you see on Instagram, we're going to we're going to whittle that down for you. Um, you know, I look at it like I'll use it, the diet analogies because everybody who's listening to this eats food, I think. Right. Um, so. Uh, if you know the the best chef isn't the one who knows the most ingredients, right? It's the one who knows how to has to, how to mix them and mix them appropriately in the right amounts. And so um, that is what we do in the needs analysis. It's you know how strong are you relative to you know whatever we would consider to be appropriate for that age. How how mobile are you? What does passive range of motion look like? What does active range of motion look like? Um, what is training age? Or what's your training age? What's your chronological age? Um, and then to me, the biggest one is: Are you actually good? Right. Like, is this working for you? So um, like if you're a guy who's really good and really successful, what we do with you might be a lot less of an overhaul than a guy who's not successful. Right. And you can call success. You can within the success bucket, you could say just staying on the field. Like, hey, are you able to stay on the field and pitch yeah. competitively throughout a season? Um, OK, if you are, then let's keep going down that route. And now let's figure out how to make you better. If you're not the needs analysis kind of starts and ends there. It has to say, all right, how do we keep you on the field? All right. That's, that's at least where my head goes. Yeah. I mean, if you're broken and throwing 74, by all means, blow it up. Like, I don't think it goes out <laughs> saying, and, you know, sometimes, you know, obviously man, manicure that message a little bit differently, but, um, you know, you hinted at something else that I think is is a really important consideration. You talked about just being on the field. I, mean, I think you spoke about it in the context of an injury, but like, we also see very inconsistent participation levels uh, across college players, right? We had, um, you know, I just think you remember Adam Ravenel, who was a, you know, a high school baseball sensation at Lincoln Sudbury, not far away from CSP Mass, drafted out of high school in, in uh, 2011, didn't sign, went to Vanderbilt. And I, I think he threw 12 innings as a freshman, you know, not much more as a sophomore. And then he became their closer as a junior. That's, that's you know, don't get me wrong. He was developing. He was thrown a lot on the side. But in actual game appearances, I, I don't think he topped – 70 innings in three years at Vanderbilt. So, you know, got to professional baseball and all that, but just goes to show you like you're going to have guys who, you know, eat tons of innings, especially on a team that goes to the postseason. You might see a college guy throw 120 innings at the other end of the spectrum. You might have a kid that red shirts who doesn't really have an official inning. Maybe he's throwing some inner squad stuff during the week. You may have guys that get banged up. Um, so I think that's always something that I, I keep in mind is, you know, times like there are guys who have, maybe something that's ready to go out and throw innings, but we have to figure out how is all the auxiliary training, the stuff around baseball that supports their ability to go get those innings going to get them better. All right, we've got to get 50 innings in this summer. What do we need to do to set them up for success? And sometimes those 50 innings can be, you know, simulated. They can be live BPs. They can be a lot of different things. It doesn't mean you have to like hop on a bus and drive to the middle of nowhere and, you know, get a host family and all that stuff. Sometimes there's, there's better ways to get the job done, but too often we, we try to one size fits all. And if you threw 120 innings, shut down and have a summer, you know, get, get healthy, get strong, do what you need to do so you can come back and do it again, or, you know, sign a contract in the draft. Cause it's pretty darn hard to throw 120 innings. 
No, that makes perfect sense. And um, what else did you have in mind in the needs analysis component that you that maybe we didn't mention? I mean, I think uh, you know you, you hinted at some of the movement screens and things like that. I think you know there's there's certainly anthropometric characteristics. You know how guys are are built. Um, you know that that may layer into like you know guys with certain you know wrist characteristics might be better fits for for certain types of pitches. Guys with really long fingers might be able to you know these different things with a change up all that stuff. I think certainly like skeletal archetypes, wide versus narrow and for certain angle. Um, you know, I think injury history is a huge one that we, we, you know, we kind of hinted at, but we, we glazed over just a little bit is, you know, what we can do with someone who's two Tommy Johns deep is, is very, very different than what we can do with someone who's never had an injury. You know, you gotta, you know, open up Pandora's box a little bit more and see what's in there. And then, you know, last but last, not least is like, you know, we have to, to eyeball, you know, uniqueness in, in terms of both hitting and pitching deliveries. Um, you know, there, there's certainly a, you know, right and wrong ways to do certain aspects of it, you know, all pitchers and hitters get to certain key positions if they're successful, but a lot of them get there by different avenues. Um, so I think we have to spend some time looking at that. And that's what I've always liked about, you know, the programs that we've run both in Massachusetts and in Florida is, it's, you know, sometimes you want to take a step back and evaluate where they are on day one with, without your input. So I love the idea of like a self-selected warm up, just so you can kind of see how they are on their natural element and then throw a bullpen without, without giving them feedback, like come as you are. And then let's, let's talk about what's working. What isn't, what do you do well? Cause I think it's very easy to do an assessment on an athlete and just, nitpick everything that's wrong but sometimes you know you build better bridges by saying this is awesome i love that you do this don't change this because it's a part of what's made you you know successful um and any other things that you've thought about like on the needs assessment that that i didn't yeah no, I, think, I think you bring up a great point there so to kind of walk people through that so um our actual evaluation process for the summer program uh, up here in massachusetts is probably is probably between an hour and an hour and a half um it's a you know it's the eval on the strength and conditioning side uh, which is essentially uh, more of a movement screen than it is a performance screen um, we will look at performance testing as well and i'll kick yeah. back to you when i get there yeah. but um, it's more of a movement screen to see how you're actually built your health history your you know everything that is more essentially on the medical side um yeah. you know you know how are how are you actually built and I think one of the very cool things I know, you know, I've obviously been here seven plus years and co-owner now, but going back to what attracted me to this model in the first place is that it was not one size fits all. Um, a lot of the baseball field, at least at that time was, um, I think it still is. I'm sure you have, you know, a lot of detailed stories about professional yeah. organizations that tend to be one size fits all. Right. Um, and I know a lot of college programs are as well. Like, all right. Um, you know, my college coach likes, likes guys who throw sinkers. So you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a sinker guy, even though the, the, the sinker is not any good, just throw yeah. a force instead, but that would just be one example, but, um, it's not a one size fits all model. Um, we've got kids, you know, guys who throw, you know, from all different arm slots who throw all different yeah. pitch mix. And it's all about fitting the athlete to, uh, you're fitting the profile to the athlete, not the athlete to the profile. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, uh, or fitting yeah, the, 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 I'm not sure if yeah. I said that in order, but I think you knew what I meant. Yeah. Um, then after that, um, we kick them over to the pitching side. Uh, we don't train right away. We basically kick them over to the pitching side. We say, hey, here's here's what it looks like. Um, the pitching side takes them through a 15-20 pitch bullpen on day one. The guys warm up on their own. They go through their own throwing routines. People do just want to see what they look like. Like, what are we working with? Are we working with somebody who has a very detailed plyo ball routine that looks really good? Are we working with somebody who has no idea how to warm up? Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, it's that one. Um, but even sometimes the guys who have, you know, all different pile ball drills or all different bands or whatnot, 
Um, some, some of the times they've just never been coached on it because yeah. they just found it on, on the internet and said, all right, these are drills I need to start doing. And the drill is only as good as the execution of the drill. Uh, but we want to see what, what we're working with from that standpoint. Um, and then from there, they got on mound, 15, 20 pitch bullpen. It's filmed from three different angles. Um, we'll get them on track, man, as part of that as well. Um, and then they'll have a video review within the first week. And it's basically like, here's what we see right now. We also looked at the eval on the SNC side and, you know, maybe we're saying that, all right, this is the way your foot lands because of your hips. Um, but also, Hey, if you just, you know, try to open up a little more, stop trying to be closed off or based off something that we saw in the eval screen, like this might play a lot differently. Like maybe your breaking ball is, you know, more uh, horizontal than vertical yep. because of the way you land. Um, and it's, you know, stop trying to throw the ball vertical, just let it, let it be even better on the, uh, horizontally. Um, but that's what the first day looks like. Um, what do you guys do right now from a performance testing standpoint? I know um, the yeah. Florida program has expanded that a lot over the last yeah. years. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, for sure. So um, certainly movement screens are, are very comparable, um, Florida, Massachusetts, but very much by design. I think, you know, this is something that's, that's you know, evolved over the course of time where the performance testing has has been something that we want to evaluate in parallel. Um, love force plates. Um, but transparently, I don't think force plates have a lot of predictive value in pitchers um, in terms of, you know, vertical jump generally doesn't pitch predict pitching velocity in guys. What I use force plates much more on is to evaluate um, you know, kind of how to attack people from a, a force velocity profiling standpoint in the weight room. Um, you know, a, a guy that, you know, basically doesn't protest is very, very reactive is someone that's going to need a lot more plyometric stuff, more your classic sprint change of direction, jump training versus someone who um, tests really, really good on those, but just doesn't have great force numbers. Like we're going to go and we're going to get them strong. So obviously looking at those things good. I also love looking at peak velocity just to evaluate how functional weight gain is. And we'll have guys that show up and like, Hey, I just need to gain 25 pounds this summer. And they might do it, but honestly get a little too sloppy in the process if you're not careful. So I love the idea of just, Hey, your peak velocity was 3.15. Let's just try to maintain that throughout the summer as the weight comes on. And it gives them just some, you know, measurable output that they can work through. With that said, I have seen some guys over the years um, across all levels who just do not test well on force plates, but they throw the crap out of baseballs. And my experience with them is they're usually very efficient rotators. They understand how to move well um, in the, the, you know, the transverse and the frontal planes. Um, and that's why I love layering up like a Proteus performance test on it, just because you kind of get, um, you know, I joke, it's, it's a rotational force plate. And we've had some good podcasts with the guys from Proteus. So folks can go and listen to that and see how they kind of layer on top of each other. But um, I think those two things have been really eye opener for us. Um, we also uh, will do a Thea markerless biomechanics measure. So it's basically a um, a collection of cameras that we take out on the field guys can be in cleats on a dirt mound and 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 let it eat in their natural element instead of having a bunch of markers taped to them and all kinds of cords hang anywhere it's it's fine we actually wheel a camera or excuse me a, a computer out to the dugout and plug in the extension cord and all that stuff and you know do some detailed calibrating and that stuff's been really good and then certainly layer uh some adrotronic footage on top of that just so that we know what their entire pitch mix is what their delivery is what their physical profiling looks like obviously what their movement screen is but the most important thing is that we take all that information and what we're trying to do is we're trying to find a comp for you. And, and what that means is we're looking for another high level thrower in our data set who's thrown on Thea where we have some movement characteristics. All right, this is a wide infrasternal angle who's hypermobile, but he's only got 15 degrees in his right hip. 
and he does this on the mount and we want to try to use those things and it's it's remarkable when you have a we have a large data set of over 100 you know 20 professional pitchers in it now where we can go we can we can kind of pluck so that they actually have a comp because where i think it's really helpful to do that is historically young john o'neill would be like you know what i want to throw like roger clemens because i was a yankees fan growing up and you'd go and you do it but your movement profile might have been totally different than what he did right so we try to find somebody that's a lot more like him and it's been really fascinating to be like yeah you throw like the you know this guy's a quadruple a player who's been on and off a of 40 man but trust me his delivery is the most in line with what you do um so that's been something that's been really cool because once you identify a delivery and movement scheme and all that stuff that, that kind of works for them all of a sudden you start to unlock some things where it's like all right this guy was a good candidate for a sweeper all right you're you're an 85 you know spin efficiency four seam let's try to seam shift this and, and throw a turbo sinker i think you're a good fit for it this guy does it and he moves a lot like you and a lot of his spin you know metrics are similar to you so um we do that all day every day and it's it's honestly something that's been been really exciting tech you know, I think a lot of us stubbornly resisted it for such a long time, but once you have it at your fingertips, as long as you understand how to utilize it, not overwhelm athletes and all that, it can really, you know, drive things. But to your point, all it is, is teaching them the right recipe. It's not overwhelming them with like, Hey, this olive oil originated in this, this part of Greece. And this is why we use it. No, it's like, just put it in. It's a half a cup and you're good to go. You know? So I, I think that's been really helpful for us. Yeah, I think within that too, like we did mentioned, like the, you know, sometimes in the college model, people are, you know, doing, you know, max to lift testing, yeah. you know, multiple times a year or whatever it is. I mean, the, the biggest test we're going to look at is, is it actually getting better than on the yeah. mound? Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't care if somebody's lifting once a week or six days a week, like it, it has to line up with them actually seeing progress. Um, yeah. You know, most of our people are lifting three or four. Um, you'll occasionally get a, an, an odd program where it's not that just yeah. based off you know training age injury history etc but um you know our standard guys are lifting four some guys three occasional two um but it doesn't really matter what the exercises are what matters is that it's actually helping transfer onto the mount um because that's what they're here for at the end of the day um you know sometimes people you know like you and i uh, for example like fall in love with the heavier lifting side you and i in our own training not in our yeah. program but um you know fall in love with you know certain aspects of the weight room and just ho uh, you know kind of cross their fingers and hope that it correlates um within the performance testing i was going to mention so um we've run 10 yard sprint testing for the last three yeah. years um so something interesting with that um you know we run it for all of our high school kids we run it for uh the the college pitchers in this program um with the high school kids um i essentially try to get all of them faster on a 10 because they're all probably going to play the field um Great. at some Carries point over. Athletes are athletes, gonna, right? Regardless yeah, and they're all going to run the base at some point, and the engine's probably their their actual output engine is probably low enough where let's just try to get them faster. Yep. Um, with the, sometimes with the older college kids and with the pro guys um, that will get um, sprint training becomes a big part of what they do if they're already fast. Mm -hmm. If they're not, then we, we just do bare minimum of it and train them for output in other ways. And so, yep. for example, like if somebody runs a uh, is a senior in college and they run a one, seven, eight, 10. And the, the way we test it, uh, might not be the exact, you know, system in terms of the numbers that uh, other people are looking at. Uh, but, um, we've got guys, guys who are fast for us are sub one, six, um, mm -hmm. in the way we test it. Um, and so if they run a one, seven, eight and they're 22 and their goals throw baseballs harder, a one, seven, eight, 10 to a one, six, five, 10, isn't going to make them throw baseballs harder. Yeah. Um, but if they run a one, five, eight, 10 to start, we're going to look at that as something that, all right, 
they get some of their output from being fast twitch and sprinting and yeah. and stuff like that and they'll probably get a higher volume sprint program um uh, versus like just doing bare minimum move on so i do think that's an interesting change that i've made in the last couple of years with that and i think it has been beneficial versus just saying everybody needs to sprint because it'll help you you know be more athletic and it's not really the case um it's the guys who already thrive on stuff like that let's make sure we, we maintain it uh, but that can be an important part of performance testing but in reality um, you know, having the track man on, you know, on all of the bullpens or as many as they can throughout the summer will tell you if things are trending the right way or not. Yeah. Um, and it'll give us feedback on. All right. So, for example, within the program, it's 10 weeks. Um, usually for us, we'll deload the week around July 4th. Sometimes that breaks in week four. Sometimes that breaks in week five. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of just depends um, you know, it, it really just depends on that because we're, we might be closed for a couple of days there and it provides this really natural deload. Um, and so, um, the last few years, basically post COVID we've shifted to July 4th week is an automatic deload week. That yeah. doesn't mean we don't train. That just means the intensity is a little lower. Um, but within that, like outside of the deload weeks or the more intense weeks, we should know why we see a spike in velocity or why we see a dip in velocity or why a guy just isn't as fresh. Like for example, if it's week three of a program, and they're, you know, lifting the heaviest weights or doing the highest volume of sprinting and med ball training, maybe we don't see the velocity jump. But yeah. week after that deload week is where we should see that spike. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's two weeks after. Some guys respond a little differently. Uh, but that week or two after the deload week, like week six, seven, or five, six, is where we should see that initial first first jump mm -hmm. where, like, all right, if this is a guy we look at and say, I think we can put five miles an hour on him, we should probably see two or three at that point. Um, and we may, maybe we get the last, the last two when they face hitters at the end of the summer. Um, Absolutely. but, uh, but that's usually what we're looking at. And the, the, essentially the, the outcome on the mound is going to tell us what's working and what's not. If we want the guy to rotate a little more efficiently, we should be able to look at video and say, all right, this looks very different. And we're going to layer the video side by side and say, this looks very different than it did five weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, what we're doing in training is working. Um, and so I think sometimes, um, tech, like we said, tech is great. We use it. Um, but the, the biggest, the biggest test is, is this actually trending the way we want it to yeah. um, make and, a force plate and, look good. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard, yeah. hard to actually impart it to, to four and, miles an hour in the summer and 10 weeks, 10 weeks is generally a long enough time to see that. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, sometimes you know, most, most places I know us included are, you know, a month to month and you might see a small increase in the first four weeks, but then you see a big increase in the second four weeks. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that's just the reality of training. You, 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 you're getting mainly neurological adaptations for the first four to six weeks. The physical side of it might not actual like structural side of it might not come until later. Um, yeah. and so, um, we've had plenty of guys who maybe only, you know, didn't quite get the velocity gain they wanted to over the summer. And then all of a sudden in the fall, when they're, when their, their body was able to handle it, they, you know, they're texting us and saying, Hey, by the way, my, I just hit this with my fastball, mm -hmm. um, like all that, all the work from the summer is putting in. So sometimes, it is just essentially like putting money in the bank that can be used later on. Yeah. Um, so the program is long enough. And we mentioned this idea of guys not necessarily having these long stretches where training's a priority. Um, the, the 10 weeks might be the first 10 week block they've had where training and throwing and all that stuff's lined up might honestly be the first 10 week block they've, they've ever had since they started yeah. playing club baseball. Um, yeah. We interrupt this podcast with a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by AG1. 
It's an NSF certified all-in-one superfood supplement that features 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. I use this product daily myself and a ton of our athletes do as well. Head to drinkag1.com backslash Cressy and claim my special offer of 10 free travel packets with your first purchase. AG1 gives you peace of mind that you're covering all your nutritional bases. Again, that's drinkag1.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you'll get that special offer. So I'm going to, I'm going to pivot and say, you know, we're talking about guys who have had good outcomes and certainly the outcomes, they come at different timelines, right? Like the more untrained guys are just going to do it very linearly. The more advanced players, there's more squiggles in that, in that success line. Like they're, you know, you have to kind of overreach them intentionally so that they super compensate. And that might happen in a week. It might happen at three weeks. It might happen in a month. Um, What are the essential elements of success? When you look back at the guys that have had the best outcomes in these programs, what is it that they've really, really done well? And I'll, I'll, I'll throw one out there and then we'll go from there. Um, I, I think adequate nutrition hydration is a huge one. Um, it's the one thing that, you know, uniformly, like we know across the board, the guys who have been our biggest, you know, jumps over the years have often been the guys that put on 18 pounds in 10 weeks, or they did something dramatically different to, to change their body. And you you just can't do it if you're the guy that's crushing beers, staying up all night, skimping on water intake, losing nine pounds on a throwing to lifting back to back and just nibbling at your food. It's, it's the guys that really do it. I, you know, the reason I think that they do so well is that uh, they, they learn habits, right? It's not just like force feeding themselves and going to the same restaurant every day. It's they, they, they pick up modifiable, you know, traits in the way that they carry themselves that, that sustain, whether they go back to college, they go to pro ball, they do whatever. I think it's just so vitally important to appreciate that the, the nutrition is like the most upstream concept in all of that. Yeah. You mentioned the biggest thing there is habits, right? So we've yeah. done in the, you know, the seven, eight years of the program now, we've done multiple versions of how we approach the nutrition side. And I will say the best version is when we start in a group setting and then it becomes individual. Um, And the reason being like when it's individual, you know, repeatedly, people don't feel accountable to other people. Um, But when you make it in a group setting, all of a sudden, like, hey, like good nutrition is, the the basics are the the, the same for, for, for all of us, right? Maybe the actual habit, the what habit needs to change might be different for each person. But, you know, proteins, carbs, fats, hydration, you mentioned, uh, you know, guys will ask about supplements, stuff like that. Um, all that stuff we can cover in a group setting. And then we can give give guys individual goals based off further conversations. So for us, that's covered in week one. Um, I know in 2019, we had a kid gain 32 pounds that summer. Um, awesome. Granted, he's <laughs> he's almost a foot taller than me. Um, yeah. so guys who, who did the, who were around can remember who, but, um, uh, but so it's a little bit misleading that number, but, um, we've had years where the, the average weight gain was, was in double digits. Um, and then we get some years where the, the actual mean number gets really thrown off because a couple of kids lose a bunch of weight and then yeah. that's what they need to do. So, um, that those numbers are often misleading. Um, I think maybe this year we categorize like guys who are trying to gain weight, what do they average? But, yeah. um, uh, but all that stuff, you know, it's, it's changing whatever the, whatever the habit is, uh, making sure they get on top of that right away. Um, the last thing you want to do is get to, you know, six weeks into the summer and be like, all right, maybe I should work on my, my nutrition now. Yeah. Right. Um, it's like, all right, well, we just basically punted on six weeks and then you have four weeks left here. And then you go back to school a week later. So you're going back to whatever habits were before, and you might not have enough time to actually get in the routine of changing that. Um, uh, but 
um, you know, the, the biggest thing is if you're trying to gain weight, being consistent with it, um, yeah. like the way I'll break that down for kids in the meetings we've run the last couple of years, like, um, you know, outside of hitting a baseball, uh, where three out of 10 is really good. Most of life, like you gotta be 80 plus percent, like yeah. to get into whatever college you were in, you probably had to get A's and B's depending mm -hmm. most schools, at least let's say. Um, and so if you have 20 meals in a week, like, are you proud of 16 of them? And like, it's a very low percentage of college kids that can actually say that they'll be like, all right, Monday was good. Tuesday was good. Wednesday was two for three. Thursday was one for three. Friday was 0 for three, Saturday 0 for three and Sunday one for two. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well, you just, you just gave me eight misses. Yeah. All right. Um, and so like, all right, you're, you're a 60% student. Um, and so until you're, you know, an 80% student in nutrition, in terms of like, you are 80% of the time you're eating meals that you would be proud of and that you would be proud to tell me that you ate. Like, we can't talk about what, what supplements you should yeah. take on top of that or all X, Y, Z. Um, like it needs to, like the basics that need to be there. Um, and it's something that everyone can get better at, right. You know, like I'm sure everyone, whether you're a baseball player or not, but it's specifically on the the college baseball side, like when you have a chance to just focus on yourself for the summer versus your, you know, yourself and your athletic development, uh, that's the opportunity to work on it. Yeah. Not when you're in school and you have schoolwork and you're going to be staying up late and then you get invited to parties on the weekends and you're thinking, do I need, what can I eat? What can I drink? All this stuff like this is the time to work on it. And the guys who have embraced that are, I think are the guys who have seen the biggest, biggest uh, uh, or the best results. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's nutrition's obviously extremely upstream. I I put hydration right with it as well, particularly yep. in, in Florida when, you know, we'll see guys that legit lose eight to 10 pounds from the time they arrive if they're not careful about their hydration. Um, what are some other things that are like non-negotiable elements of success? When you see guys that have crushed the program, what yep. has been the most impactful for them? Yeah. So um, a lot of it is individual habit based to me. So I look at the kids who like everyone, you know, gets the program that in theory is about the same length in terms of time. Right. So, you know, we're not giving some guys 30 minutes of training and other guys two hours, right. It, you know, you might have 10, 15 minute deviations person to person, yeah. but you're not having hour and a half deviation. So um, it's the people who actually see things all the way through and get there early and prepare. And um, so we, for example, like we have days where you're throwing first in the morning and then you're lifting in the afternoon. Uh, or you're lifting later in the day um, for the throwing side, like the guys who see the best success or the guys who you mentioned individualized warmups before are the guys who get there early and they go through their warmup routine and they go through all their plyo ball routine and the stuff that they need to get done before they're working with the pitching coach. Um, and maybe the plyo ball stuff's with the pitching coach. That might not be the best example, but there is stuff that they supposed to do that. We're not, you know, going to, you know, roll out their forearm with a stick for them and have them hold their forearm out and do it. Like, how, how seriously do you take the little things like that? Um, just to give an example of something that um, seems fairly mundane, but is part of a larger habit scheme of how you operate. Um, and so the guys who, you know, get here 30 minutes before they're supposed to throw and actually go through what they're supposed to do versus yeah. guys who like are constantly running late. And it's like, hey, by the way, you're supposed to be on the mound in 12 minutes. Hustle up like like you don't you don't have time to go through mm -hmm. 10 minutes of foam rolling. You got to be on the mound in 12 minutes. And so. Um, you know, as much as we want to babysit um, kids and want to uh, or want to stay on top of kids like that, there are times where you got to drive yourself here. And yeah. if you're running late, uh, that's that's on you. Uh, but there have been kids we've had in the past that are consistently like showing up 
not long before they're supposed to throw and kind of rushing through their warmups. And I think as, as mundane or as small as that might sound, it snowballs into other things. Like what happens? And if you're doing that in this setting, what happens when you're in school? Um, what happens when you're in season? Uh, what happens when you're frustrated with your baseball career and down on it? And so um, that's probably the biggest thing. The guys who just stay on top of the little things as, as uh, cliche as that sounds. Um, but the guys who, you know, treat it like a job, you know, uh, you and I are sitting here, I guess, almost 9 PM tonight. Like, um, these, these guys, their, their jobs for the summer is a couple hours of training, an hour of throwing, cook food outside of here. We will occasionally get kids who work a part-time job on top of it. Um, but that's not the norm. Um, but if they can't commit to three, four or five hours a day of something, like they're going to have a really tough time committing to eight, 10, 12 <laughs> in, 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 in three, four years when their baseball career doesn't go the way they want it to. I love that point. And you know, the, the, just like locking in warmups, actually making them a priority. Like I've been around some, some really big time arms and, and bats in this game. And like the one thing, nobody, uh, you can't get away with not having high quality warm up at the, at the professional level, right? It's 162 games plus spring training plus postseason. Like, and, and not only that, there's all the off season training side of things is if you skip on warmups, it will get you eventually. Right. And the reason is simple is the warmup is not just about getting your body temperature up. If it was, we'd all just sit in a hot car and then get out and do some arm circles and go do our thing. But it's very much about optimizing the way that your body moves. And, and I think what we know about throwing a baseball is it's the single fastest motion in, in all of sports. Um, you know, and, and the challenge is that, you know, like you can't just roll out of bed and do it right. And you, and, and the injury rates that we're seeing right now are very, very representative of that. And we always, we hear these stories about like, well, you don't see cheetahs warm up. I'm like, first off, they don't live that long. And second of all, they don't go out and make 120 max effort bursts in a two hour period. Right. They, the volume of, of a high level sprinting that they do is actually remarkably lower than what you're going to do throwing a baseball, which is uh, you know, also putting you to some pretty biomechanical extremes where you're, you're taking a hinge joint and asking it to work sideways. So I just, I come back to like all of the really elite players that have had durability and success in this game. They have a really, really high quality warmup. And, and I think our job in this program is to say, you know, show me what your warm up is. Maybe there's some things that we really like. Here are the things that we see in your movement screen and in, in your mechanical deficiencies, things, positions that you need to get into that you can't. And let's figure out a way. Maybe it's doing some stuff on the 3D strap. Maybe it's adding some med ball stuff to warm up. Maybe it's that you're a really, really stiff guy and we need to get your body temperature up a little bit more to get a little bit more extensibility. We need to impart that wisdom on them because it's going to sustain them far after they leave whichever CSP facility they're at. We want them to, to understand how that can be a difference maker long-term and, and worth getting to the facility 20 minutes earlier just to put themselves in a good position to be successful. Yeah. And and that was just the first thing I thought of. And and yeah. as I was saying it and kicking it back to you, like the, you know, that comes down to being coachable and moldable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the same program, like if, you know, let's say in theory, two people have the same lift, right. If one guy is coachable on it and listens to technique yeah. changes and listens to what weight should go on the bar and stuff like that. And one guy doesn't, or doesn't buy into that or is stubborn about it. And, it wants to add 10 more pounds because it gets to a round number, even though we're trying to tell them to go down and wait, um, whatever it is, stuff like that. Like the, the guy who's coachable is going to see more success um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, you know, for example, like in the weight room for us, um, like I, with our intern program here, I'll talk about it. Like, all right, if, if you see above an eight RP out of 10, like, like double check that that person should actually be doing that. Right. 
or maybe educate the person on, all right, if you're going to go up, it's a five pound jump. It's not 25 because it's a round number. Right. Um, and if you see, you know, a, a 10 out of 10 RP on something where it's like someone shaking and their techniques falling apart, it's too heavy. Right. And we want, like, I, I want to want to run a weight room that has one, no, 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 like complete failure reps. And two has everything looking on point technique wise. And, um, a lot of kids have not been in a setting like that. Um, at least you know, where, you know, you, there isn't something that you're pushing technique wise and just going up and wait for the sake of going up and wait. Yeah. So, um, that's essentially how we operate our weight room in terms of like, all right, this is what things should look like. doesn't mean we don't push things like a, a well done eight or nine RP out of 10. I'm using RP just, I know some, some baseball people on the podcast, but it's essentially a scale, uh, in a, a subjective scale out of 10 where 10 is like the, you know, you may or may not complete the rep and your technique completely falls apart. Mm-hmm. Eight is it's challenging, but technique's really good. Um, and so I'm using that just kind of just colloquial here, but uh, colloquially here, but, um, you know, a lot of kids haven't been in that setting where they're not constantly trying to max out on stuff and push weights to too much amounts. And, but we, we want some things to be heavy when it's supposed to be heavy, it should be heavy, but technique has to be on point, um, for us to actually one, ensure like safety of the, of the athlete, but two, actually ensure that there's some, some chance of carrying over onto the mound and not just carrying over to make you, making you stiff and move like a block. Um, we want you to be able to rotate fast and efficiently. And, um, and so that's the tying this back in like guys who are coachable guys who listen to what weight should go on the bar guys who listen to technique changes. Um, we've probably seen it all or close to it. I, I would, I would lean towards you, you know, you've got a decade more experience than I do, but I'm a decade in at this point. Like I've, I've seen a lot of different versions of college pitchers come through. Um, and like as much as everyone's a little bit unique, um, there's probably somebody that you remind me of that I can coach you more efficiently than you can coach yourself. Well, and the thing I would tell you is even building on that is sometimes we're recreating a former version of an athlete. Like yeah. I, I saw a pretty high level professional golfer this morning. Right. And, and this particular athlete had a really extensive training age, a lot of experience in like TPI driven stuff through med balls a ton. Um, and then it was a multi-sport athlete got to college. It was a very like back squat, clean bench press type program, and actually steadily got worse throughout college, went to the private sector, um, initially had some really good results doing more of what they they hadn't been doing, did a lot of chops, a lot of lifts, a lot of med ball stuff got better, and then got to the first off season and was programmed a lot of like the same heavy bilateral, build a strength base, and all of a sudden was, was super banged up felt like was getting worse and all that stuff. I'm like, Hey, you've learned the lesson twice, right? You were good, got bad, good, got bad. Like we know what works. You don't feel good when you do a lot of crazy heavy lifting and bilateral stance. Like you're an elite rotator. Here's the positions that you need to get to. She was, you know, narrowing for sternal angle who, you know, had lost some rotational capacity. Like, Hey, we know what we need to do to get you back to where he is. We hindsight is 2020. When you've made this mistake twice, let's not make it a third time. So a lot of times we have these conversation with athletes of, hey, when were you at your best? Let's go back and look at, look at video of that. Let's pull some of the metrics. Let's nerd out on, on who you were when you were going good. And sometimes that's a kid who 
through a two seam his whole life, got to college, you know, coach wanted to switch him to a four seam. It just, it wasn't a good fit for him. So, you know, we go back and we look at why was that two seam so good for you? What was it that felt natural? Oh, you threw a change up that was similar to your fastball grip. That makes sense. It, all these things work together. So I just come back to like, you got to be a, a good listener on the front end to really figure out what's worked, what has it. And then also, you know, just recognize that there's a lot of information to gather to really get context for every athlete and what their unique needs are. Um, and you, you you brought up a good question yeah. there something i almost mentioned earlier and just and just forgot to but this idea of like when were you at your best or when did you yeah. feel your best and and pretty much every pitcher i've ever worked with can answer that question yeah and some of them can tell me an exact game or an exact week or an exact month or actual pitch best pitch yeah, ever right. through yeah yeah most of them a month of a season um and, and backtracking with that can be very very valuable um mm -hmm. if if the if the engine's there already like if they're already mm -hmm. a higher level arm or if they have you know, their fastball is good or, or can be good or it was at a higher level or whatever it is. Um, if they're not, so we see we see a fair amount of that. Um, I think there is a, uh, a misconception. Um, you know, it's based off, you know, who we market and who we talk about. And, you know, the pro guys and the, the, the major league all-stars, they they market our, our business pretty well. Um, and, but the reality is, like, at least in Massachusetts, and you could speak different on Florida, but in Massachusetts, you know, nine out of 10 people that walk through the door are not professional athletes and the number is actually higher than that. But, um, and so we see, you know, a lot more 80 to 85 mile an hour arms come in than we do 92 to 97. Right. Um, for example. And so a lot of times like that jump from 80 to 88, um, is as simple as like, let's build a bigger engine and get better in the gym. Um, and so like, there's a couple examples there of guys who are of like, uh, archetypes of, of players who I think made a summer program makes a lot of sense for one is the, the 17 U and the kid who played club baseball all the way through 17 U and the, the whole goal was just make it to the dance and just, you know, get a college commitment or yeah. get a spot on a college roster. And then all of a sudden their 18 U season hits and the club doesn't have a program. And then even if they do, they have to uh, ask themselves like, all right, is playing summer baseball, even in my best interest, like what's the point? Um, and we can help that person get ready for college. And all of a sudden, instead of like that school feeling like a reach or, wow, I'm so happy they offered me a spot. All right, you're going to go in and, and compete for innings right away. Um, and so like that 18 year old, they just graduated high school and they start with us a week later. Like that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. The other one is the, like the smaller school arm who uh, maybe didn't get a ton of innings and there's no obvious like transfer spot for them. You know, mm -hmm. the, the transfer portal now, like, if a lot of times at the bigger schools, like, oh, I don't like where I was. I'm just going to go somewhere else where they're going to pitch me a lot. But at the smaller schools, like if you throw 82 and without, you know, really good uh, pitch mix and and um, you really just don't have the stuff like nobody's going to and you don't have the stats to back it up, like nobody's going to take you as a transfer. And so maybe you don't like where you're, where you are and you can come to us for a summer and, you know, make 82 into 80, 87. And then all of a sudden you're a marketable item to other coaches or you're a marketable item to your own coach. Uh, but those are two that come to mind that I think are slam dunks for the summer program in our model. Um, and I'd love to hear your your take on, you know, the guys at the Florida club baseball scene, what the high schoolers tend to do. And um, also like, you know, you guys get a lot more 92 mile hour arms that are trying to go to 94. So um, yeah. where does where does your thought process go with those? Yeah. The, the one I'll add to your, your, your second example of like, you know, the kid who got 10 innings, but really needed 
you know, to develop and, and get on the radar. There, there's also actually a, a, a large volume of players who got like 35 innings and got their teeth kicked in. Like that's, that's probably honestly even worse place yeah. to be. It's one thing if you just don't show, but it's nothing altogether to show well and put up or show and put up a nine ERA with more walks and innings pitched, or, you know, you got absolutely, you know, uh, you know, guys demolished everything you threw. So I think we see a lot of those guys. And then you quickly recognize like, it actually becomes a good platform for figuring out, you know, if you don't throw, it's really hard to evaluate what you need to do well against hitters. If you were not and you, you know, you couldn't consistently locate a, a fastball, your slider was never on the plate, like the Vila wasn't good, all that stuff. Those are those are things that are really, really, you know, uh, glaringly obvious. You can also look at what are the successes you have? What did you do well? Are oh, you got two fastballs, you're forcing your two seam or are very differentiated? Let's leverage that stuff. So I actually think we saw even more of those guys last year in Florida. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of like the, um, you know, hey, I wanted to get 75, 80 innings instead of the 35 or 40 I got. And, you know, I think we have the outdoor amenities to almost like simulate a summer baseball season. And, you know, I think we both know, like we've we've placed guys on the Cape, you know, Joe Rock being a great example. Joe was a, a third rounder by the Rockies who went to Ohio University. And, you know, Joe had a great summer program. And I remember I think it was Wareham, Jerry Weinstein was, was looking for some arms late in the season. And Joe went down and pitched great for them for the last two weeks of the summer after having a really good first eight weeks in Massachusetts. So I think we've placed guys on the Cape and, you know, we're fortunate there's a, the collegiate league of the Palm beaches is, you know, taking place all around us. So if we have a guy that, you know, feels like he wants a little bit more game-like experience versus just throwing live BPs to the hitters that we have around, we can do that. So I think it's clutch to be able to have those opportunities for guys to actually go out and compete because it's, it's one thing to do it all in a bullpen off a, you know, a turf mound or dirt mound or whatever it is, nothing all together to have somebody step in the box and, and be competitive. So, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a little bit of something for everything, everybody. Is it a good fit for the guy who threw 120 innings and is, is hanging? No, like that guy just needs to shut down and do our normal training and all that stuff. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start the gradual on ramp, you know, later on in the summer. But um, I think the guys that, you know, were less than 50 innings are, are usually really, really good candidates, guys who have been bullpen arms that want to eventually work into a starting role. Um, you know, it's just a way to kind of maybe diversify their pitch offering from two pitches to three. Um, you know, I think those are, I've always been people that stood out in my mind. Sure. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. And I know, uh, you know, we've had, uh, you mentioned Joe Rock. There's uh, Ryan Moore in the summer program yeah. as well. He's now pitching pro ball. Um, there's a few others from previous years, but um, you know those guys were both examples. At least Ryan was of a guy who was just coming in and was fine tuning, right, getting a little yeah. better. Um, and so you know it could be like you know a guy like you said, a guy who pitched a lot. And it's whatever your next goal is. Um, I think there's a lot more guys who the goal is to mm -hmm. see the field, right, than guys who are pitching all the time. Um, maybe not, but um, but a lot more guys who just need to need to get on the field more. Um, like you mentioned, that sub 50 innings or yeah. you know, 35 innings, 10 innings, whatever it is. Um, you know, and then even the guys who do throw a lot, uh, the 120 is an extreme. Um, but we've had guys who threw 50, 60 innings during the year, and maybe they're getting a lower intensity version of the of the throwing in the summer program because you know they threw a competitive 50, 60 innings, but they know they don't have a, a good secondary pitch that is going to be marketable to pro teams, yeah. right? You know uh, I come back to like these programs are a good fit for anybody who is craving continuity in their development. I use that word so much when people ask me about it is, and I deal with this with pro guys, like the hardest job on a, on a pitching staff in pro ball is long reliever. 
right? You might go 13 days without throwing and all of a sudden have to go throw 75 pitches. The next day you're coming in and you're getting a ground ball in a big spot. Like it's just, it's the hardest thing to plan for. And I think we see a lot of people that, hey, they're they're leaving on the weekends and they're making a midweek start. They're just getting pulled all over the place. And the hard part is we both know, like, you know, we talked about the deloads within the program, but there's kind of mini deloads within the week. There's a, there's a high-low model where the stress of throwing and the stress of training, they're consolidated so that we have these hills and valleys throughout the week to set guys up for success. And that's really hard to do in a competitive calendar, particularly when you mix in, you know, scenarios where there's long bus rides or you might not have gym access or anything like that. What we try to do is we try to take the variability. And I mean, not like training variability, that's very important, but I mean, just the variability, the lack of predictability in a, in a weekly schedule, you take that out of the equation. That's where development really happens. We say, all right, you know, it's, it's Tuesday, Friday, bullpens. You're going to lift Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. We're going to sprint on Monday, Thursday, Saturday, you know, Thursday is going to be a low key day because on Friday we want you to let it eat. And on Tuesday, we're going to work on more stuff. Like you could just set things up for success so you know where guys are going to recover in and other times when they're going to push and get after a little bit more. That's really hard to do in a competitive landscape, particularly if you're living away from home. You don't know what you're eating. You don't know what your travel plans are. And I'm not down on summer ball. I mean, all these guys are doing this because they want to get better at baseball. But I think sometimes there's a a role for taking a few months of a step back just to make sure that it's something that's that's good enough to compete or, or to showcase when the time is right. Sure. Yeah. And, and what you mentioned was this idea of like, you know, stacking training and throwing. So the calendar is a line. Um, yeah. It's, you know, there's the very small percentage of schools in the country that are able to do that effectively. Um, I think it's the ones who have a, you know, a, a baseball specific SNC guy that only works with the baseball team and they communicate with the pitching coach who communicates with the head coach and it's just hard to do. Right. And then you get in season and maybe that's even harder to do because guys throw in all different amounts. Right. And so it's, you know, it's a 10 week window where you have a chance to do that. You have a chance to throw all your bullpens fresh. You're not, you know, crushing upper body weights. And then the next day expect to throw baseball as hard as you can. Um, Like we're going to line things up. So it fits. The other thing within that too, like, um, you know, we talked about, you know, individualized warmups, individualized programming. Um, That is not uh, just unique to the training side. So the throwing side, like we have guys who have more or less intense versions of what, you know, of what the throwing is. So maybe some guys have more pull downs than others. Maybe yeah. guys have, you know, more aggressive. We have to chase velocity a little more. Um, and so I think sometimes in the past, our model, um, you know, just because we, we have had a lot of success with these guys gets pinned as this, you know, all right, your shoulders barking, you need to go see them and, you know, but they're going to fix you, um, which maybe we can. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the reality is like the, some of the guys we have the best success with are totally healthy and, they just need a little more velocity and we can push them pretty good. We don't have to, you know, baby them through the summer. Um, now the guys who we do, we're going to be able to do that because it's not a, you know, velocity program. If somebody's not, you know, physically ready for that, um, or, or if somebody doesn't need that, right. If somebody needs more time on the secondary pitches, that's what they're going to do. Uh, but the guys who need to chase, chase velocity to either get more playing time or to get looked at for the next level, whatever it is, becomes the primary driver because velocity, um, we were talking about just before the call about guys throwing, you know, 95 plus and not even getting looks from pro teams. Right. Um, but velocity is kind of like the, it's like the college degree. It's like you need yeah. to get a job. Foot in the door. Right? Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's the foot in the door. It's the, um, if you don't have it, you're not going to get to that, whatever that next level is. We like to, you know, like reminisce on the Jamie Moyers throwing 78 with incredible changeups. Like yeah. those guys aren't getting recruited. Happens um, once every guys aren't years. getting signed to play <laughs> anymore. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, um, you know, so we do essentially need to, if that's the goal for somebody, we need to be more aggressive with the throwing program. If it's not, we can easily tailor that back just like we would on the training side. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you kind of hinted at like the idea of guys not being ready for certain things. One of the things that's actually kind of astounded me over the years is, you know, I think we usually do a really good job of prospecting. We've, we've had some guys that sh- that have shown up and like, man, you're way more banged up than you let on from your questionnaire and your yep. email conversations. And it's it's actually fascinating to see how how well they've done in spite of that. Like, you know, guys that, that we kind of had to pivot and be like, all right, we're going to go into like a return to throwing program mode, rehab, take a step back, work on some stuff. You know, you might be playing catch at 60 to 90 for these first couple of weeks to build back up. But um, I, I was always fascinated at how well those athletes did just because I think it actually is more about the psyche aspect of it is like, they're feeling like an athlete, not a patient. You know, we're, we're fortunate in both locations to have good physical therapists and um, obviously massage therapists who, who contribute to, you know, the success of the program. But it is fascinating to see guys that, that showed up thinking they needed a performance when in reality, the best avenue to perform better was to like get rid of pain and move efficiently. So, um, you know, that's something that, yeah, you know, I don't like to be surprised on them, but I have been encouraged by the outcomes. Sure. Absolutely. And one of our guys who had, you know, the, amongst the best success of guys from our previous summer program, we, we talked about shoulders and elbows and whatnot was a, was a kid who, um, had a, had a spondy a couple of years ago and had back pain for a couple of years. And, um, you know, four weeks in, four or five, six weeks in, didn't have back pain anymore. Um, yeah. and, and has continued that. I should just saw him a few weeks ago. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll mention that piece of it as well. So I know, um, you know, it, it's marketed as a summer program. Um, you know, we want, we want people that train with us for the summer and then come back over winter break. And like I'm mentioning the kid who, who, who I'm referencing, um, and then are back a little bit the next summer. And then hopefully, you know, whether they play pro ball or not are, you know, training with us for multiple years. And so, um, you know, sometimes it, it can be looked at as a quick fix for people like 10 weeks, get me right. And that's it. Um, when in reality, you know, you work with a lot of these guys, there's no, nobody in, in, or maybe there is, but there's very few guys in professional baseball who are like, Oh yeah, I did my training a few years ago. I'm good. Right. right. And, um, it's the, you know, it's, it's getting into good routines, good habits. It's creating the relationships, whether it's with you, with me, with our pitching guys, um, where they want to come back, where they have, where they have a resource during the season, during fall ball, during winter break, during the season to ask questions to, to take a look at video, whatever it is that we can help with. Um, and really try to become part of the culture that, you know, we're essentially here to help. And so we're here to help get help guys. You know, the goal is to get them as good as possible for the next spring. It's not to get them as good as possible for, you know, August 8th or whatever the end date of this, this year's program is. All right on, man. Well, I I think that that tied a really good bow on it. I mean, it's about relationships and that's what sets guys up for long-term success well after that, that 10 weeks. Um, for more information on the program, it, it runs uh, June 3rd through August 9th. It's 10 weeks in both locations. There's one in Massachusetts um, known as the, the CSP Elite Collegiate Baseball Summer Development Program. Um, and then we also have our, our CSP Pro Experience, which takes place at our Florida facility in Palm Beach Gardens. Um, they're interested in Massachusetts. They can email CSP Mass. That's all spelled out, M-A-S-S at gmail.com. And then CSP Florida, again, all spelled out at gmail.com they're interested in the florida location um john this was a this was a blast as always uh, appreciate you carving out some time yeah absolutely thanks for having me and you know uh, mentioned the email accounts if people just want to reach out with questions more than happy to jump on a call absolutely thanks so much for your time all right thank you 
Thanks so much for tuning in to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. We really appreciate you carving out some time in your schedule to listen, not just to this episode, but also to some of the episodes from our archives. If you enjoy what you heard, we'd love it if you'd share it with friends, colleagues, and teammates, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks again for your time.